0: Buddy, welcome to another episode of the 10 laws with east forest podcast i am said east forest and i'm really happy to be sharing another episode with you hope you had a, a good thanksgiving this week we have another conversation with morning altars otherwise known as day shilkret and day his book finally came out i don't know if you heard the original episode we did with him but his his book uh Called Morning Altars came out on Countryman Press and it's out there in bookstores. Matter of fact, it was just out in Powell's in Portland, Oregon. And uh I was with rada and her family. We walk in, and you know how they have those sort of recommended books like right there, and it was right there. I couldn't believe it. And uh it's kind of fun because a lot of the altars in there, I'd say several, half a dozen to a dozen. I was either either there with him or crossing paths or helped him and there's even one in there that is the album art for one of uh well, an East Forest album called Elements. And uh there's a track was well, oh, sorry there's a there's a whole album called Elements that's actually only available on the East Forest website. I never released it on digital distribution like Spotify and Apple and those sorts of things. So if you've never gone over to eastforest.org and you want to check that out, you can. You might ask, why didn't I release it? And um, to be honest, it's because I wasn't, I don't know, parts of me wasn't happy with it. and parts of, It was sort of a soundtrack for a project I did with uh, Udaya, Udaya.com and Tony G. Tony G is a yoga teacher and I wrote all this music for a series he did with them and we performed it over in Bulgaria, which is where they film stuff. I mean, why do they film in Bulgaria? I Because it's cheaper, I think. Anywho, that music it existed and I was like, well, it's pretty good. You know, and some people really like that stuff, that record. So I put it out, but for some reason I never got it in the distribution queue and it's just been on my website all this time. And the artwork is a Morning Altar's altar that's sort of riffing on the, the Nautilus logo of mine, I think he did it with like red berries and charcoal and some white berries or something, but I'm not really sure. Anyway, you'll find it. I don't know what page it's on off the top of my head. The book's sitting right here, but I don't want to thumb through it and find it, you know, and bore you. That's, that's not good radio. So uh, we're having him back because it is timely with this book, but these things, these are conversations we're having. And they, as you've probably found, they go where they go. So it's not really just about p- promoting something. It's really, that's just an excuse often to talk. And we just get into each other's lives and, and what's on our minds. And that's what I love so much about this stuff. Um, like when I was at Esalen, I met a couple people and now I get this great opportunity to say, hey, this this I'd love to get to know you more. And would you like to come on the podcast? And we can essentially talk. And even people that I know well, uh, that I've sat down with to have a conversation for this podcast, I find that I, I learn so much more about them just by you know if, how often do you get to sit down with someone, let's say for an hour, hour and a half, and just lo- really your your intention is to listen, and your intention is to uh, help them basically get into themselves and speak and i I really enjoy that because i think a lot of times when we're in conversation we do have an agenda and it's usually something as small as a point we're trying to make or uh you know something we're trying to we're trying to it could just be practical like we're trying to get something across we can get something done and so we end up kind of waiting for someone to finish speaking so we can say what we need to say and it's not often that we just do just just some really good listening um which is quite profound because I've noticed that when I do focus more on that gift of listening and helping cultivate someone's ideas in conversation, I really enjoy it too. So it's actually been a really wonderful learning process for myself as well. So how was your holidays? How was Thanksgiving for you? I went out to Montana with Radha and that was nice. It was quite cold. We stopped at a hot spring Sort of a built-up one, but a super old school. And I discovered the fact that every restaurant in Montana serves chicken fried steak among french fries and burgers, steaks, and iceberg lettuce. That's kind of the jam out there, it seems like. Um, But, you know, it's getting to be that time of year when you're driving around, at least in these parts of the states, in the mountains, in the west, where it's icy and it can be a little sketchy. Um, I just drove out to Portland, Oregon. You know, we were at Powell's and stuff there. My my parents had a 50th wedding anniversary, which is a trip in itself to think about 50 years of marriage. Uh, But we had some weather there too. So I've been doing a lot of, as I think a lot of people are, a lot of this sort of family things. We're getting into the The holidays, I don't know about you, but things are kind of slowing down a bit for me as we move towards the winter solstice. Things are obviously darker for those of us who are in North America. And it's a time uh, that I'm doing a lot of back-end stuff, business stuff. We're still working hard on the Ramdas on the back-end. I'm hoping to actually get the masters of those, maybe even today, from the mastering, which is very, very exciting. And... I think that's as I've spoken to before, a bit nerve wracking, mastering, because it's the last step. And I'm also even working on um, mixing some stuff for the next, next thing. So it's just, we're always, always trying to stay creative and, and recognizing the creative process as, as just that, a process and one that feeds me. And I think it can feed all of us because there's a creative spark in everybody whether you express it through free writing in the morning or you are actually an artist a professional artist or or you just like to cook and that's a form of creativity or even the way you do conversation that creative spark and that, that the exercising of that creative energy is definitely one of the doorways and a key to our full beingness of being human and for me at least for being Dare, dare I use the word happy? <laughs> it's not that happiness is the goal, but uh, fulfilled uh, on purpose, on moving forward with this ship, because that's all we're really trying to do. So if you're feeling a little stuck, I would say try to do something creative. Try to try to experiment and, and see what happens. We are getting a few dates together for 2019. I see a lot of dates. There's not a lot up on the tour page right now. I think I've just got Yoga Ford up there in March, which has tickets available, and the Esalen Retreat for the Summer Solstice in June. Tickets are available, but there's plenty of other things in the cooker. And again, if you want to help host a ceremony-style event somewhere, uh, anywhere, if you haven't already, you can write to booking at eastforest.org and just tell us that you'd like to do that. And Rachel or someone will get back to you and we'll start to coordinate and see what we can do. Cause we are, we got some wonderful replies from people out there and we're putting it all into a list and, and working to piece together the puzzle that is called touring. And um, it's going to be good. A lot of variety of, of different things. And I'm just now starting to Work on getting some of the Ramdas material into my live set so that we can just start to get this conversation going about the ideas that Ramdas is bringing out and choosing to bring forth through this record, what he uh, thinks is relevant for this time. And there's some really, really great subjects and micro teachings essentially in there that I see as catalysts for larger conversations and ways for those conversations to bring people and groups together and to build community. So we're going to be talking about, as we start releasing, the first release date is January 25th in 2019. And we're going to be encouraging you guys to get together and to host a a listening party, a gathering party, where we can check out the new material um, and we can maybe give you some content to help spur that conversation with the purpose of bringing together the tribe and crafting new stories together and finding new tools and using music as a tool. So that's going to be happening soon, and and you can reach out to us about that too if you'd like to host of an event. And this will be something we'll just be doing through, throughout the year in, in different ways. So very much looking forward to that. So today's conversation with Morning Altars... Um, Yeah, I think it speaks for itself and uh, hope you guys are having a good holiday season. I'll keep these podcasts going, so we'll see you soon. Enjoy this conversation. Okay, hi, I missed your morning altars. How are you today? I missed your east Forest. I'm doing well. So we've spoken before, but now, many months later, I have your your book in my hands here. This lovely book. It's incredible it just
1: it just came out. actually well, actually, it's not even published yet. It's publishing um, next week officially. So well what you have- date
0: because this will probably be out. I'm curious you know if people are listening yeah. to
1: this in reverse. Sure. It's um, coming out October 30th, but uh, it sounds like the rumors have it that the the pre-orders of the book are already reaching people's hands already. So oh. um, yeah. And I cool. just saw my first copy last week um, in New York where we had a book launch party it, at the Assemblage. And uh, we just had our West Coast book launch party this past Thursday night in Berkeley, California.
0: How do you feel about the book when it's in your hands? I mean... You had maybe like, do you have a mock-up or anything? Or is this sort of the first time you saw it?
1: This is the first time I saw it, yeah. I mean, the whole thing's been a virtual process where I've been, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's literally gone from a very embodied, earth, hands-on, tangible process. And then it goes into a camera and into an editing. And then, you know, the words on a, on a screen, writing the book on a screen and editing the book with my publisher on a screen and getting um, passes of the editing process on the screen. And so so it went from a very tangible process to a very virtual process for for almost a year. And then um, actually having the book in my hands has made it tangible again. And one of my favorite parts of the book actually that I advocated strongly for is the cover of the book is one of my altars and it's embossed. So you can really yeah. feel the whole, every little bit of the altar um, from the from the acorns to the leaves. They're tangible on the cover.
0: Yeah, that really adds, um, just right from the get-go, a whole layer of, I don't know, it's, uh, it's kind of high end. I mean, that must have been a difficult thing to push for.
1: Yeah, it was a difficult thing, but I think what we wanted for the book, for the reader's experience, is we want them to feel like they're touching something. You know, the the process of of morning altars is very hands on, embodied, earth based process. So, you know, when you're reading a book, is usually very flat, and we wanted something that um, people could actually feel.
0: Yeah uh super cool yeah i'm Thanks. seeing here on page 131 there's the picture of the altar you made for the uh, elements album the east forest album oh yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's in your old yeah.
1: backyard right that is and there's a picture of the process of that altar being made
0: well i think this is the fir- this is just the outline
1: oh yeah, yeah. okay yeah and then there's a, a full page one yep later on
2: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how's proud. the response been? I mean, what have you been hearing from people you actually know or, you know, versus random? This is great. You know, have you heard any?
1: Totally. Um, anyone well, dug I think into from, it? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I'm one of the privileges of being an author. I guess that's what you call me nowadays is um, getting text messages from people that are like, I'm on, I'm on chapter three. I can't put it down kind of thing. Mm. um so that's those are really lovely emails to get and text messages to get during the day mm-hmm. and um, and you know it's it's a very it's interesting to see people relate to the book because there's different ways to read the book i mean you literally can successfully flip through this book and just look at the pictures and be completely satisfied you know right. and and a lot of people do that and then you can read the book just as a uh, as a practice book. I mean, there's different practices in the book where you can just look at the what I call the basics, and um, you know, just if you want to like have the book be a, a companion for how uh, how to make a morning altar, and um, and that's fine and dandy too. And then you can also read the book like it's a book, and um, and read the stories and the wisdom and, um, and some of my pros and those people that are actually doing that, you know, I consider to be my allies in this because, um, because I consider the book to not just be a picture book. I consider it to be something that is contending with something in this world right now. And, um, and there's something that when you are making earth art and out inside nature and, uh, working our imaginations and letting things go, letting things be impermanent. There's some seeds of our humanity that are definitely in erosion these days. And so, the people that are actually reading the book and kind of remembering this wisdom that that I wrote about, um, I think are getting something very, very uh, satisfying and deep from um, from my writing. So I'm I'm quite proud of that. And uh, I had the privilege on Thursday night of reading three sections of the book in front of about a hundred people here, uh, in Berkeley. And, and that was, that was really nice. You know, there's something nice about, about taking your own book and reading it in front of people. Um, I had, I had, I had brunch yesterday with about 10 of my friends and they made me do that at brunch too. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, but it's also, uh, it's satisfying, you know, to, to share what you've written, share what you're, what you're on about well
0: i guess books are kind of unique because it's you know you make a record people listen to it and then the next interpretation i suppose is you play it live whereas you write a book people read it and the next level is perhaps you read it live so it's just kind of another level of experience it's different Mm
1: -hmm. yeah And, and there's something about story you know something about i had someone yesterday um reflect to me how nice it was that i read them a story you know, there's something like very childlike. Um, you know, we all like having stories read to us as a kid.
0: Yeah, and you can yeah. show us the pictures as you read it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know it was a it was a long it was a big heavy lift writing all those words over the winter yeah. when you were in in Boulder, and so it's you nice it. to see it to see it together because I know like the art existed in its own form independently. So I mean, I know I recognize that the main lift of it was the words, writing it all yeah. out and creating, uh, 200 and some odd pages of text. So,
1: you know, if you think, you know, about something, write a book because <laughs> yes. it's Hard. basically a good way <laughs> for you to, to contend with not knowing about something. And cause it's not like writing an article or, you know, writing like a blog. I mean, you really have to take, um, a thread and continue it for, you know, sometimes 10 to 15 pages
0: well, and just editing yeah. it is such a, it's such a large process,
1: you know? So large. Yeah.
0: Just like every time you go back to do things, it's like you're dealing with tens of thousands of words. So,
1: yeah. And they all have to flow, not just in the sections they have to flow, but also, you know, the whole chapter has to, in some ways, um, you know, uh, to me, I see it almost like little streams that are confluencing into a river that are. Kind of leading into this big ocean of a book and they all have to flow in harmony with each other they have to have a rhythm together and um and so the if you read the book um the beginning of each of the chapters has kind of a similar feel to it i invite people into the spirit of that particular chapter and give them a little taste of what's to come and then inside the chapter we kind of dive in but I use stories um, of my experience in the fields um, or, you know, building altars or, you know, from the littlest story of uh, one time a squirrel came and, you know, literally ran onto the altar and stole a nut off the altar <laughs> to, um, to big stories, you know, like, um, you know, my, the death of my father, for instance. And, um, and telling these different stories as a way of trying to understand both nature, art and ritual. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm very, I'm I feel like the ocean of the book, the whole body of the book is, um, it really, I think I, of course this is like me saying I did it, but you know, only you can be the judge, but I think I I was relatively successful at creating a home for the spirit of this work.
0: So you've been on the road a while. And I know you've got four, four months. Yeah. And you've got some more stuff coming up. Um, four or five more months. So It's not so easy, is it? On the road as I've tried to. It, it's explain. a teacher. Yeah, sure. man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's. What are some of the harder things that have been coming up or challenges of being untethered?
1: Of being, of being on the road? Mm-hmm. Well, it's just that. Um I mean, there's there uh, there's ten thousand things, but the the one you just named is um is the untethered part. Um, you know, I I've, I've been living in a home for, you know, more than half a decade, and going down to the same creek, you know, underneath the same two redwood trees, um, and doing my art every morning in the same exact place. You know, there's a rhythm to living a life like that that's reliable and uh and grounding and no matter what's happening in the bigger world you know i have this little kind of tiny little area by the creek that i can be at and um and so there's a consistency both in my personal life and in my artistic life as an artist and being on the road it is very difficult to find the time to both forage and um and find a place to build and take six hours out of my day to um you know, to create some art and photograph it. I mean, it's just I don't I don't know the place.
0: Well it just you know? takes so, all of your rhythms and kind of tosses it. Takes them, all the rhythms which yeah, is yeah. sort of the best thing and the worst thing about it is that that's one thing I think people like about being away and traveling is that they it just takes all that routine that maybe for some of them got a little stale and it's it's gone. And
1: revamps it.
0: Yeah, right. And life is also, in some ways, pretty simple on the road because you're more focused on the basics, like where you're sleeping and food and basic tasks, but you don't have some of those chores that maybe you have when you're home home.
1: Um, yeah, like do you know, like cleaning up the house or yeah. you know, putting away the dishwasher or and, big those.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there's mm-hmm. there's definitely those advantages of streamlining life. But I hear you; like, it can be harder to get into those routines. Like, I know it's harder for me to uh, have like a morning practice when I'm on the road.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: meditation. I mean, for and things
1: for me, yeah, meditation and yoga have been um, pretty consistent companions. And, uh, but there's other little things that are, I mean, those things are pretty portable. Um, but there's, there's other things that are much harder to, um, to accompany me on the road. And, and some of them are quite, you know, physical, for instance, you know, I like, (laughs) I had an experience two weeks ago in New York city. I did a, um, a workshop at the Andy Warhol residency in Montauk, Long Island.
0: Yeah. That's the one I was and- supposed to do too. And then they were like, totally oh, yeah. I'm not a visual artist after they asked right. me to apply. I'm like, no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> it's like, why did you ask me to apply?
1: Yeah. 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 So, um, but I found, you know, some of the days it was raining there and I couldn't really make my art. So I just kind of wandered the beach and I found, you know, hundreds of tiny little, crab shells and mussel shells and, and a bunch of stuff. And, um, and I was going to build a big altar, um, in Manhattan for my book launch experience there. And basically, um, you know, my life these days is we have a word in Yiddish called schlepping. I mean, my life these days is, is schlepping things. And so, you know, what in the past became like a very easy, either putting materials in my car or, Leaving them in my house or keeping them down by the creek. You know, nowadays, if I want to work with something, I literally have to schlep it. And so I was quite literally a bag man <laughs> walking around Manhattan with the craziest things, you know, bags of crab shells and mussel shells and berries and bark. And, um, and it's, it's, it's exhausting. Um, and so it's asking from me a really new, um, a really new flavor of, of how to be in the world. And um, I'm going to have that challenge next week um, when I go to New York City. Um, I think I told you the big news, but I'll, I'll share it here. Um, we just were asked last week to partner with the 9-11 Memorial Foundation to build a... Um, to lead about, who knows, 500, 1,000 people. Um, they're inviting all of downtown Manhattan to um, Ground Zero, to do a morning altars workshop, and that's uh, quite an honor. Um, yeah, but yeah, but you know, where are uh, five hundred or a thousand people foraging from in downtown Manhattan? So um, you know, this is the quandary I'm in um, in such an urban environment, which is how do I um, work with the material that's there, and also. Supplement some of the material for that many people, and so part of my mission next week when when I'm in New York is to wander about downtown Manhattan and to forage for things in advance of that of that event um, and that's part of the challenge right now is you know going to these places and and trying to really it's almost like i'm I'm quite literally trying to reconnect the natural world to the urban places
0: well you didn't exactly pick a An easy medium for going out and doing it all the time. Apparently,
1: that's that's my style.
0: (laughs) You know, it's like really this probably lends itself to doing it a few times a year. But you know, going from city to city and then having to spend a whole day just getting materials in a Mm -hmm. new place in any whatever the weather is, and then gathering. I mean, that's that's an exceptional amount of work. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's also you know at its at its best. It's it's beautiful. I mean, I get to really learn places. Oh, know? it's awesome. It's just a lot of work for you. It's a lot I of mean, work, yeah. Yeah. So but we'll I mean, see what, what happens in at Ground Zero. You know, uh, it's part of this... Um, I, d- I worked this festival called Reimagine Death Festival in San Francisco last year. And I, I did my own workshop in a cemetery um, in Oakland. And then they asked me to, to lead their closing ceremony. And apparently I did... Um, an an okay enough job that they took me out for lunch a few weeks later. And the founder of the festival asked me a question that every artist wants to hear, which is what's your dream. And, um, and so I said, you know, honestly, my dream is I, I want to build beauty in traumatized places. And he looked at me and looked away and he said, I'll get back to you. And, uh, you know, six months went by and last week, Called about this nine eleven gig.
0: Oh yeah, um, better yeah. watch out what you wish for. The next stop could be uh,
1: Syria or uh, someone said that to me last night. Yeah, someone said that. To me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I don't, you know, I want. I'm a change maker. I'm a. I'm a spiritual activist. So I want to go into places where, you know, I don't want to build in in places that already have so much beauty. I, I did the pioneers conference this past weekend Mm -hmm. and um you know they're doing good work talking about you know new ways to um to create you know consciousness around the environment around our planet but you know one of the shadows of being at a conference like that in Marin, california is it's it's overly saturated so everyone is like at this grand feast of you know the creme de la creme of everything and and it's almost like people's people have, you know, they're so hungry, but they also take for granted everything that's there. And, um, you know, I'm happy to work at a festival or a conference like that. But I also think going to a place that's really, you know, um, struggling with having or knowing beauty and bringing beauty or bringing the people to beauty or letting the people remember how to create beauty, thats that's something different. And, um, I'm way more turned on by that these days.
0: We were both, you were in New York at nine eleven, right? Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we knew each other then? Or do we, yeah. no, we met after that, I think.
1: Oh, uh, I think we met in 2002. Probably because I mean, I met you by living in New York
0: and I doubt I just moved there like three months before.
1: Yeah. We didn't know each other in 2001 because I was in Brooklyn at the time and you and I met when I was in Manhattan. Well, I was in Brooklyn too. Well, not that that would mean we would
0: not know each other. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was there 9/11. I remember um, waking up and looking out my window in uh Fort Greene and seeing across the seeing across the water the the smoke. I I could I could see downtown Manhattan from my from my apartment. Yeah, I was in Park Slop on 4th uh-huh. Avenue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, my roommate pulled me up to the roof and both buildings have been hit, but I was supposed to have my first headshot session, like as a photographer ever, like my first one
1: that oh, morning. On November 11th? Yeah. And the I mean, girl I'm didn't
0: show up. Yeah. She didn't show up obviously. And I went on the roof with my camera and I, and like within a minute, uh, the first tower fell down. I took a bunch of pictures and as it was falling, wow! I, I remember, um, I'd love to see those. Yeah, I was on film, so some black and white film. Wow. But I remember the sound; it was like a, a rumble, like a volcano that came many mm. seconds later because yeah. it's like a mile away. Wow. Do you remember the um, black smoke? Oh yeah, billowing for weeks over I Brooklyn. Sure and do. The papers—you yeah. have papers falling down and shit like
2: from. I the, did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The name of the. Um... The event that I'm doing, um, I called it turning loss into beauty. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's part of our our, you know, birthright as humans is to in whatever, <clears throat> excuse me, in whatever way that you can. To, you know, loss is inevitable. <clears throat> Death and dying are inevitable. I mean, destruction is inevitable. But can you, uh, <clears throat> with it, can you turn it? can you transform it and shape it and arrange it into something beautiful? And um, yeah, I, I think that's part of our mission is as people, as people of consequence, um, you know, especially during these times that we're in, how do we keep on bringing beauty to the planet?
0: Well, I think that's sort of been the human experience forever. And maybe that's how you could summarize what life is, is bringing beauty to loss. Yeah. It's what it means to be alive.
1: Yeah, but I think part of the issue these days is that, you know, most most of us are not um we're not charged with that. You know, we're in this industrialized culture where we're being told, you know, that being a human is to work and consume and uh and stay busy. And there's just there's there's not enough people on the planet right now, especially in the western civilization that are bringing beauty, you know, that's, and so that's what I'm on about. And that's I hear, I know what you're on about too. It's just bringing as much beauty to these times.
0: I could, you know, the older you get, everyone experiences loss and pain. And I know we spend a lot of time running away from it, but it is a common denominator. And that's something that can tie us together. I mean, something like nine 11, I suppose is a collective loss, you know, a large scale, very public loss, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is just yet another another step in the road that we all we all have to go through. Even like the ultimate loss of our own loss of our life, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think part of the, um, I mean, I don't think this culture is doing it well at all. Um, if I don't even know if they're they're aware of it, but I, you know, part of, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book. I mean, I think that's the point of ritual is that it keeps us in rhythm with the realities of our humanity. And some of that is um, loss and, and grief, and some of that is praise and celebration and joy. Um, but I think the purpose of ritual, either a daily ritual or an anniversary, um, you know, milestone or whatever is to keep us in rhythm. And etymologically, that's actually what the word means. The word ritual etymologically is connected to the word rhythm. And so it has this sense of, of keeping us in time. You know how a dancer counts when they, when they dance like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So it keeps the ritual is the counting and it keeps the humans in time with, their, you know, with their um, sense of, of what it means to be a human. And I think without the rituals, we, we completely lose course and we're out to sea, and we're, we're, you know, kind of out of time in a way. And we've lost the steps because what being a human being is, is very naturally is where um, it's, vi- it, we're forgetful uh, species you know, we're, we were kind of, it's very natural to, to, for us to forget and have amnesia. So the ritual helps us remember, not because forgetting is wrong, but because forgetting is human. And the ritual helps us kind of come back into this, like, oh, right. Oh, right. Oh, right. You know? And so, um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Ritual is sort of like an extra level of consciousness. We overlay intentionality.
1: Yeah. A cultural level, you know, Mm. it's the, it's the, I come from, you know, my people are, well, most of them that I know are Jewish and, and we have, you know, daily rituals and weekly rituals and yearly rituals and, and they help keep us in sync with the, with the seasons and with the rains and with the moon. And they, you know, they help us kind of remember how things have been, you know, historically And they help us come back together again. You know, when these days everything's kind of pulling us apart and many of us are feeling very isolated. The rituals are what bring us back together. And that's what art does as well. I mean, literally, the word art comes from the word arty, which means back together again, almost like Humpty Dumpty. So the purpose of ritual and the purpose of art is understands that life is isolating and separating and art and ritual and nature um bring us back together. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean don't you see your art doing that as well?
0: Um bring Brings us back people. together again?
1: It bring yes, your how I understand your art and and my own, but how I understand your music is that you know, when I or other people are feeling um a little bit uh isolated, lost, scared, fearful, unsure, doubting, whatever the the feel the very natural human feeling is. I listen to your music and there's a remembering. Oh right. I feel a little bit more myself. Oh right, I feel a little bit more connected. Um, you know, I'm remembering something. Yeah, I think your music has the capacity and the power to bring both people back to themselves and back to community, back to nature, back to a sense of remembering.
0: Yeah. Hey, by the way, I'm getting a lot of like shuffle noise from, I think the microphone rubbing at your collar or something, but if there's okay. a way to kind of pull it off. Yeah. I, I've i always felt that by connecting back in with ourselves, which is what you're sort of what you're saying that that remembering or that reconnection and you're sort of simultaneously connecting into that which is larger than you because you are larger than you and hopefully that in turn engenders a connection into your larger community the world around you compassion Um, just that sense of the infinite of beingness i I think most of our day-to-day lives we get so caught up into in a consciousness and an attention span that's very close and like very immediate. And that's where all of a lot of our worries live. Mm-hmm. And some of these rituals you're talking about and art and experiences, all the things that open us up to the larger view. And we, we start to get this sense of what's more important to us and our heart, kind of our heart mind.
1: You know, when I was writing the book, I was living in a cabin at the ranch in Boulder. Um, and, um, I don't know how it happened, but every day, um, there was, you know, a bunch of masons building that wall behind the cabin. <laughs> and I wrote a book while they're hammering on, you know, chiseling stone. And, uh, I was writing the chapter one day about, um, creating my art, which is really about assembling many little pieces into a greater pattern. That's really what I'm doing. You know, I'm taking lots of acorns and I'm making a pattern with them and then a bigger pattern with other things and then connecting these smaller patterns with bigger patterns. And uh, I just had a block with the writing that day and, and just stepped outside and had a conversation with those guys. They took a break from their chiseling and we just sat outside and had lunch together and talked. And one of the, one of the things that they were saying about, um, you know, I was, I was saying, Hey, I'm writing a chapter on, on, um, creating my altars, assembling them. And I'm just, I'm a little bit stuck and, you know, here's what I do. And they're just like, Oh yeah, this is what we're doing. I'm like, is that so? They're like, yeah, we're taking little pieces and trying to make a bigger piece, bigger wall with it. And one of the guys said, you know, my first day on the job, I was watching the guys around me chiseling stone and, you know, maybe they'd get 40 to 50 stones in for the day. He said it would take me all day, maybe I'd get one, maybe two in. And he was talking to me about what he called the zen of, of rocks. And, um, and he was saying that, you know, it takes a lot of listening to know how to chisel the rock so that it has almost a conversation with the other rocks that he's trying to get it to fit into. Mm. And that it's not about him forcing the rock into the wall as he sees it to be. It's almost like he's negotiating the rock so that it can talk to the other rocks. And um, I wrote a story about this in the book because uh, I was so moved. And what moved me was that we're doing this similar rhythm, which is this like... You know, as, hu- as a human being or as a, an artisan or a craftsman, you know, we're trying to get out of our own way so that we can listen to the to the thing that's in front of us and shape it how it wants to be shaped so that it fits into a larger conversation. And um, and that is, I think, what you know makes them successful in building a wall. What makes me successful in, in making my art or writing this book and you know, possibly that's how you see your music. Um, you know, these like really being able to listen to how these little patterns play with each other. And part of the job is, you know, listening so intently that you can start to create larger patterns from the smaller patterns. And to me, that is what I would call the language of the universe. I mean, that's how you look, you know, through a microscope at a snowflake, or you look two-dimensionally at the rotations of the planets in the sky and you know, they're all creating these little patterns that are creating bigger patterns. I mean, everything in the universe is speaking like that. And to be able to see it is a real skill.
0: I, I was thinking last night that people in countries that are less westernized, they must look at us and just be like, why do they think it's so complicated to they're be a like, <laughs> they? Why are they struggling so hard? It's like, just like, do your shit and, you know. Yeah,
1: but those those people in those other places, perhaps, I don't know. But, you know, one of the things that they all have is probably some sense of intact village. And I think part of what we're struggling with is we're all kind of, we're in an individualized culture. So we have to work harder.
0: Yeah, that's sort of what I was getting to is that, um, like, it's sort of in a Western affliction based on all the trappings of convenience in a way creates a further separation that makes like the yearning so much deeper. Totally. (laughs) I
1: was at at, um, brunch yesterday and we were, there was like this real rich bacon smell in the air. Everyone was like talking about it. (laughs) I was talking with this guy about the bacon. Somehow the conversation, you know, got into a conversation on, How things used to be, probably for both of our ancestors, in terms of like, you know, not so long ago, everyone probably slaughtered their own animals, or at least, you know, their neighbors slaughtered it for everyone. And now, you know, we have like, you know, slaughterhouses and distributors, and you know, plastic uh, merchants wrapping the, you know, the bacon in plastic and styrofoam, and grocery stores selling it and you know, so many different businesses and industries that are involved in a very simple and and very human, um, you know, skill of raising animals and slaughtering them. And yeah, that's exactly the same thing we got to yesterday was like, fuck, we've severely overcomplicated something that was very simple and very profound at the same time. And we're suffering from that.
0: Yeah, it's like we've covered up Uh, that which is natural in a sense and we're searching left right up down and center for the way back and it's sort of like your birthright by getting back to some really simple things that are just simple things yeah yeah, i know it's like but you can have all the juices and smoothies and yoga classes and workshops and all this stuff and in some ways it's like it's it's like you can keep adding on but it's more about taking away oh
1: yeah I mean, to me, it's like, you know, I went through phases of, of, of that, um, in my life and, you know, nowadays really what it comes down to is like, you know, my mom's not doing well. So, you know, how am I showing up to her? Exactly.
0: Yeah. And That's that's uh, the core of it really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she like brought me into the world. So how can I like, you know, really walk on this path with her and, You know, how am I showing up to my friends every day? Am I like really reaching out to like my dear ones and checking in with them, see how they're doing? How am I taking care of my body? You know, not like overly. You know, like I I wouldn't call any of this shit spiritual. You know, it's the most
0: spiritual in that it's the most immediate things of your your existence.
1: Yeah, but I think when we when we name it, I mean, I would so much rather name all of this all of these things mundane. And not call them spiritual because I think when we, when we start to put, to put those labels on it, it become, they become so conceptual. I mean, yes, fine. You can call me caring for my mom spiritual, but like when it comes down to it, it's just simply my obligation as her son, you know, and there's something so simple and beautiful about that and so challenging about that. And, you know, all the lessons I'm learning, all the ways that I don't want to do it and the ways I do want to do it and how it's, bringing us closer together and pushing us further away, you know, and it's just, it's so much more, um, it's, it's so much more inherent than having to like read books about it or, you know, like listen to any, you know, it's just like, this is, this is what people have been doing for thousands of years, caring for each other.
0: Yeah. I went to a wedding this weekend, um, with Radha and, one of the moms, I guess, as it was described to me, had Alzheimer's, uh-huh. but she was there and she was in her own universe, you know? And so I, I suppose most of us knew what was going on, but it's, there's, essentially there's one person there who's like, was, was, will get up and just say things out loud or go up to the, to the, it was two brides uh-huh. and, you know, have a conversation with them. And one of them's like, oh, why don't you go sit down? And they're like, oh. Okay, you know, and, but there's, you know, from her perspective, the the mom with the Alzheimer's, she doesn't know. And yeah. is she suffering from her world? Well, yeah, sometimes, but so do we. But from her perspective, she's suffering just like a child would in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, man, it just really gets you to think about even just uh, the blindness of our own perception of what our consciousness even is uh, it's difficult for me to describe uh like the point of view we have in this very moment of what it means to have human consciousness to be day to be trevor that's just where we're seeing it from in a sense and that you know if that was devalued by all timers or something now you're seeing it from a different respect but you don't know like we also don't know what those octaves are above perhaps this consciousness that i have you get glimpses of it perhaps with satori <clears> moments <throat> from psychedelics or meditation or extreme events but there's there's a hubris to think that like we we know
1: i've i have personally really given up on a lot of that stuff i mean i am you you know you mentioned like me being a workhorse at the beginning of Of our conversation, and and you know, I I would say my devotion these days is towards just this, you know, just showing up and doing the work. You know, the simple work, um, trying to be kind, um, trying to make beauty, trying to stay faithful to you know what I've been entrusted with, if that's my art or my mother, for instance. And, um, and just doing my best to remember that this is a whole, this enterprise is limited of being alive and being here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, I think one of the best things that we can do that is so the antithesis of spiritual bypassing is practice walking every day with your, with your death, and with death in general and you know my art does this very elegantly because i'll make something and then it just it gets destroyed pretty quickly uh, i'll spend 10 hours on something it's gone maybe in 10 seconds you know but i think one of the most elegant and cha- most challenging things we can do as people that is ver- that's available to you right now and that is essential and that is a um an interruption Of the regularly scheduled program of the dominant culture that we live in is to walk around in your days with your death as your companion. And that makes gratitude immediately present in everything. That makes things that makes grief immediately present in everything that allows you to be humble. That allows for a sense of, of longing and and connection of praise, you know, and joy, and you know, to me, it's just like, when you know, you're, you know, for instance, if you, if you have a relationship, like a best friend or something, and you know, this is the last day you're ever going to see this person again, that just, that day becomes very holy, you know, and and you just treat it differently. The very mundane things of just sitting and having tea with that person just becomes like a very beautiful and grief-soaked experience. And to me, every day could be that, you know, because you don't know. I mean, you know, I just had a very good friend um, just tell me that they were diagnosed with cancer. You know, you just don't know. And so like, what if this was your last meal? You're eating lunch right now. You know, what if this was the last cup of water that you're sipping? Like how, first off, you don't know. So at least consider the possibility that it might be. And then how does that change the way that you do it and engage with it? You know, do you do it more beautifully? Do you savor it more? Do you feel it more? Do you feel grateful for it more? Well, know, the
0: people who would say they don't want to know because that savoring or gratefulness is a form of grabbing, like it creates more desire in a sense for they don't want to on. know what <laughs> that they don't want to know when is the end it's always the end i like, could the only thing we know is there's an end right <clears throat> at least an end to whatever this is
1: and, yeah, I, and I totally could, agree with you yeah, i'm just pointing out that uh yeah i think that's the at least from my perspective what i can stand behind and advocate for in this world is um is to learn endings and yeah. to become good at practicing them and and to let your life be deeply informed by them and, and to make beauty from them. I mean, you know, who's an expert at this? Fucking like the, like the master of this is Leonard Cohen. Mm. His last album was just like, holy shit. Like he knew he was at his ending mm-hmm. and he wrote, um, his last album. And have you heard it? It's just like, it's so beautiful and so heartbreaking at the same time. And he just, he does it. He, he does it like no other person. He just came out with a new book, actually. And his uh, his family just put together unpublished pe- uh, lyrics of his work, and just this guy is just you know just the best at, at w- exactly what I'm talking about.
0: Hallelujah! Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I got a question. Um, I know that you are doing your altars as a, a business, so you you probably haven't ever done one. Recently, or how often do you not photograph it or share it? And I know it's step six in your uh, movements of the altar practice, but yeah. have you ever thought about the advantages of creating it and not sharing it? It's sort of yeah, a gift actually. Of the moment.
1: You know, I wrote about that in chapter six. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a I wrote a story actually called "The One That Escaped." And um, And I started off saying that you know there are times in my life like when I first started building the altars when I went through a major breakup, and I was not doing this for anyone but myself and the land. I was just doing this as a way to move through my grief. And you know every morning I would just go to the same spot and make some beauty as a way to just feel better. I was not photographing it at all. And then, and I actually did that intentionally because, um, you know, I didn't want the complications of like, of needing to be seen. I actually didn't want to be seen. I just wanted to be alone. Um, and, uh, I was scrolling through through Facebook. I tell them the story in the book and a friend of a friend posts a picture of one of the altars that I made inside the park that she found. And in the book, basically, um, I tell the story that this woman. You know, maybe I can like. You mind if I uh, if I read a, a tiny little bit? Sure. Okay, if I can actually get to this chapter while we're. I can vamp right now. It's an old theater term. I'm getting to uh, the story. I think
0: vamp is more of a noun. You would be. You'd be a vamp. I would be a vamp. Yeah, oh, here I it is. See, you as a
1: vamp. Look at that. So she wrote this on Facebook. Um, this is under the photo of the altar. Um, what page wrote is this? This is on 179. She wrote, um, I was having the absolute worst day ever. My landlord let me know that she was moving back into my house, home, and I had 30 days to move out. And only an hour later, my car got broken into and all my stuff stolen. This is time for a timeout for my life. I needed to escape and pronto, and so I went to the park to walk and figure this all out. Where was I going to live? Why now and why me? I was looking for signs as to what to do because I seriously didn't know. Towards the end of my walk, just when I had almost given up and decided to leave my life here in California, I came across this, this magical creation. I have no idea who made it, when or why, but damn, did my faith get renewed in an instant. The sign I got was to trust in the mystery and not to be afraid. So to whomever made this, even if it was a bunch of little fairies who worked on it, thank you. You renewed my, you renewed me. So she wrote that on Facebook, and you know, it was that moment of reading that that I was like, "Oh, this is this this has the you know that one." I was not even um, trying to photograph and get out there in the world, and it got out there anyway. And it's, it has, it it, it's like you put something into the river of life, as my teacher says, and, you know, it lives beyond you. And, um, and so I realized in that moment that, you know, sometimes whether or not I want to share them, sometimes they get out there anyway. And that was a real, um, bone chilling story for me because, Mm. um, you know, it's like these things are alive and they have their own way.
0: I'm going to read the quote on the same page as Stephen Jenkinson quote. Yeah. You need witnesses for wonder. Some things in life are too hard to see by yourself because they take up the whole sky, or because they happen every day and winding above your busyness, or because you thought you knew them already. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of needing witnesses for wonder. That's a yeah. really beautiful quote, it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that it's uh, it's good to, you know, in some ways, it's good to be in the presence of wonder with yourself. But when you can wonder together, you know, when we see something that is worth wondering about, and, you know, we're doing it together. It's like to be able to look at that night sky. And, you know, you and I did that this past winter, Trev. I remember standing outside the sauna with you and we looked up at the sky and you know just wondering about this insanely expansive universe that we're in you yeah know, it's both probably the
0: greatest like gift of being out there is the cosmic connection mm-hmm. by the stars imagine yeah. that just about everyone of our ancestors had that connection and it's been more lost since the industrial revolution
1: indeed hey um i don't know how much time you have but um i'd love to read one more thing sure that's cool. This is because um, we were talking about you know the, this whole thing about lo- turning loss into beauty, and uh, I wrote a little something about this. If you want to read along, it's on page um, two ten. This is called "Loss into Beauty." This past spring, my little wandering companion left this world. Rudy, a stout and stubborn miniature schnauzer, was buried under the two towering redwood trees down by the creek. The morning after her death, about seven of my friends and I dug a hole and filled it with wild chamomile flowers, fennel branches, desert sage stems, shells from our favorite beach, and the salty drips and drops from all of our tears as we buried her little body in the ground. That entire morning, we sang sad songs underneath those redwood trees as they cried too, with the rain from the previous night's storm still dripping from their branches. A lot of tears were spilled that morning as we all came to terms with the loss of our little bear. Looking down on this freshly covered grave of bare earth, I felt compelled to lay down an altar. I arranged a circle of pine cones around the hole she was buried in and let my tears mingle with the altar I was creating. Raven feathers and bay leaves filled the space and made the grave look like a circling wheel as I imagined my best friend traveling back over the stars to her ancestral dog pack. I spent a couple of hours arranging this altar while letting my grief make something beautiful for her and for all of us. This is a way I've come to know how to express love. I've often heard my teacher ask the question, what does it take to fall in love with being alive? It makes you consider your default knee-jerk response when you're healthy, happy, busy, and all the pieces seem to be falling into place properly. When you have what you want and it seems like it will be this way for a long, long time. It's easy to love life, then, but this is only loving the part of your life you prefer, the life you approve of, and that works for you and everyone around you. I can hear my teacher pleading me to dig even deeper, that perhaps the understanding of love, and all of which you hold dear, is found by glimpsing its endings. That maybe loving life truly and irrevocably comes when you recognize that everything in your midst isn't going to last, yourself included and then loving it all even more so. That kind of love asks you to let go of an imaginary future where everything lives indefinitely for the sake of really letting ourselves be in the midst of what is present in the here and now, albeit temporarily. The many months before Rudy died really taught me about love. I was witnessing her in the last chapter of her life. While it was challenging and sad, it was also an experience that helped me locate my deep love for this dog and her life because I knew she wasn't gonna last. She was 16 and every day was another opportunity to witness time having its way with her. She taught me through experiencing her ending that my grief was actually a new way of loving her. I wasn't just loving the parts of her life that were familiar or easy, but I was learning to love all of her life, including her ending. It was through my heartbreak that I could feel a way of loving her, a way of loving that I hadn't felt before, a way that included my longing for her. Quote, grief is a way of loving, says Steven Jenkinson, and love is a way of grieving. They need each other to, in order to be themselves. My grief for Rudy was and is joined at the hip of my love for her. Loss is an inevitable reality of life for all that we hold dear will eventually leave us or we will eventually leave them. Yet, in this industrialized culture, we humans shun our eyes to this fundamental truth of life. Loss is considered an unwanted sign of failure where something went wrong. This dominant culture built on progress and growth doesn't see loss as having a purpose other than something to overcome. There is much more effort made to avoid loss, such as a struggle to keep it at bay for as long as we can. And even when loss becomes unavoidable, the cultural responses to Get through it or get over it in order to get back to business as usual. Many other cultures in the world teach their people how to grieve well and do so communally. The Mohawk tribe, its condolence ritual and the Jewish people's seven days of Shiva provide just two examples. By contrast, our modern culture asks people to suffer, asks its people to suffer their grief privately. And even when someone dies in our lives, most people only get a week of bereavement from work to be with their loss because the motivation and expectation is that they can get back to living their normal lives again, not to let the grief interrupt too much. And yet that is the whole point of grief. Grief is meant to interrupt our lives so that everyone can once again remember what is important and what matters. What if we treated our grief not as an affliction, but as a way to get to know life well? What if grief could be our own way of praising, not just what we lost, but also what we still have? What if grief was not something to try and get through, but instead was a skill to get good at? What if grief was, as Toko Pa Turner says in her book, Belonging, the downpour your soul has been thirsting for? Grief is a visitor that comes to us with purpose. It arrives to tenderize our hearts. Grief helps us remember that all we have is only here temporarily and to find gratitude for that. Renowned grief practitioner and psychotherapist Francis Weller says, the work of the mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other and to be stretched large by them. How much sorrow can I hold? That's how much gratitude I can give. If I can carry only grief, I'll bend towards cynicism and despair. If I have only Gratitude. I'll become saccharine and won't develop much compassion for other people's suffering. Grief keeps the heart fluid and soft, which helps make compassion possible. When you live this balanced way, with the endings sitting next to you as your beloved companion, and not banished because they are too sad or painful, you can practice loving all of life, its beginnings, middles, and endings. For this is the natural order of things. Knowing love and loss in this way shapes you into a real human being. The poet Cahil Gibran says, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more jo- joy you can contain. What that means is that your love and joy for life is directly related to your capacity to know the bittersweet reality of loss. Love and loss are inexorably inexorably tied together and they inform the other. Your willingness to know this and not close your heart because of the way life is, but to open it even wider, knowing that grief and love, loss and life are two wings of the same bird, is the practice of becoming a compassionate, alive and grateful human being. Even though you may want so much of your life to last forever, grief tells us that it can't and shouldn't. And from that place, the heartbreak of knowing that life truly is impermanent and fleeting Is how we can, as Martine Prechtel says, let grief turn our losses into beauty. For this is where our love for life flowers. Because Rudy is buried on my land, which is not true anymore, by the way. It's not my land. Because at the time it was. Because Rudy is buried on my land, I am able to visit her grave and altar almost every day, and every day I feel her loss. Over time, I have let the hole in my life that Rudy left be filled with beauty for the whole world to have. Many altars have been made from this loss and even this very book has been written from a broken-hearted place for I long for my sweet pup to be lying next to me as I write. But it is through the brokenness, through the tender, cracked and open heart that came from Rudy's loss that I understand what Leonard Cohen means when he says that's how the light gets in. Mm.
0: Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, yeah, good place to end
1: the endings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the the endings, well, I appreciate. Sure I think a good way to end is is actually saying thank you to you, Trevor. And um, you know, you and I have been friends for a while, and we've uh, we've been through a lot together and separately, but witnessed each other through quite a bit and, and maybe even, you know, there's a lot more to come. And I'm just, uh, I'm grateful to just have these conversations with you and, and to, you know, to be allies and champions for each other in our work in the world. And just the fact that they could weave us together again, like this is an honor and, uh, I'm just honored to be friends with you, man.
0: Well, it's mutual. We need witnesses to wonder, as you say, and, uh, Yeah. It's beautiful. Congratulations on this work. It's momentous and I encourage people to check it out. We'll put links to morningalters.com where they can find you on Amazon or wherever they like to get books.
1: Yeah. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, all those places. Uh,
0: Definitely. Yeah. Everyone go to Walmart, get the book on Walmart.
1: (laughs) Actually, everyone go to your local bookstore and ask for this book to be carried there. That's the most important thing.
0: You going to do an audio book? I hope so. I can help you with that if you need help.
1: Okay. Okay. All
0: right. Um, All right, my friend. Cheerio. Enjoy the road.
1: Cheerio. Thank you. Blessings, everyone.
0: Okay. There it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Morning Alters. The song you're hearing in the background is called Through the Fire and it is a track from that album i was mentioning before called elements that has the artwork by morning altars as the front cover and you can find that at eastforest.org and hit the music tab and uh that's the only place you can hear it well i think i think that's about it i'm gonna let you just groove out to this and we'll catch you in a week i always love uh getting to say hi, please do give this podcast five stars. Scroll down there on your phone, on iTunes, and give it a little review. Write a little couple sentences. Tell me something crazy about it, what you like about it. Those make a big difference. I read them. I love them. I read them on the air too. I'll get to those next time. And you can always reach out at info at eastforest.org with your questions or comments. And speaking of, I got an email from... uh, (laughs) Married O'Donnell? Married O'Donnell? Mar... Mar... Married. 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 Are you... M... Anyway. Thank you, Married. Hi, Trevor. I hope you're good. Uh, I just said I would write you this email to express my appreciation for your music. I find myself listening to your music every day. It sends me to an amazing place, and I am grateful for that. Um, ask me if I'm coming to California... Anyway, what you're doing is amazing. I felt compelled to write to you and tell you. Thank you so much. Hey, look, I appreciate it. I'm in a vacuum and it's wonderful sometimes to just get these notes and to say, keep doing what you're doing. I wish I'll say the same to you. You keep doing what you're doing, whatever it is you're doing. And am I coming to California? Yes. Um, I know. I mean, I don't know when, but I know next summer we're doing a big part of a release thing for Ramdas in August out there, but I know I'll be back there before then. Um, so always check, check wherever you check, like my website or get on the mailing list and you'll find out. I try to send emails through the mailing list just to like zip codes, you know what I mean? To regional places to let you know when we're coming to town. And yeah. Oh, and I just want to let you know, we put up a post about the perfume oils, Angels Rest and Toadlick. And a lot of you guys have been picking those up for the holidays. So we did get um, a bunch more made recently. I sat down and pumped out a good a good uh, several more dozens. So if you're looking for gifts for the holidays, we should be able to fulfill those orders right away. Very unique. And we got more toad-looking angels rest. So no worries there. We can't ship it internationally, unfortunately. I think we can to Canada. But for right now, just domestically and A maximum of 12 at a time. These are just like mailing rules about perfumes. But if you'd like up to 12, we can give you a wholesale rate. If you'd like to sell it in your store or something, if you have a yoga studio, just let us know. Hit us up, info at eastforest.org. You guys keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But, you know, if you do, do it with grace. Catch you later.